This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 17, Episode 37. This is Writing Excuses, science and fiction. It's not just science fiction. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Katie. We are so excited to have Katie Coleman back with us again. Uh, We are still in the Capitol Reef National Park at the UVU Field Station with our wonderful writing retreat here. And Katie, our former astronaut and and current wonderful person who is here with us. Uh, We're going to talk about science communication. Kind of there's lots of different angles to approach this from. Um, what, and, and you kind of suggested this topic to us, what is important to you, uh, about, uh, you know, the, the fictional side of science and, and the science side of fiction? Well, I know when I'm tired and I've been working hard, some people will watch like a documentary about the equations that went into figuring out black holes, but, and those are really important and good. And there's a really good one out, right? But pretty typically I'm going to, I'm going to watch or read fiction, or science fiction, or something that's kind of fun, right? And the fact that we can use that to tell space stories is just really important to me. I feel really so lucky to have gotten to go, very privileged. And the fact that people then share that world um, that I got to live in and that I'm part of that exploration, it really means a lot to me. And I think one of the things for me that's exciting is that People, like I've said multiple times that people are made of narrative and we, we learn better from a story than we do from, from someone handing you a bunch of facts. So what happens, though, is that people will zone out in their science class and they'll totally pay attention to the science in a story that is often wrong. Like how many people do you know that believe that if you go into space without a spacesuit that you will explode, <laughs> which is... Like, explosive decompression does not work that way. <laughs> well, and I, I really, I, I, I don't know. I, I love that movies can, like, bring us to space. I, I got to help with the Gravity movie. Mm-hmm. When, when I was up there, my little brother met Sandra Bullock's brother-in-law. And he goes, hey, you know, Sandy's making this movie. And do you think she would talk, your, your sister would talk to her? And he, she, he goes, well, you know, she's been up in space for like four months with five guys. I think she would talk to like any woman in Sandra Bullock. <laughs> I think the answer is yes, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so we, and so, but I did not help with the technical aspect of, that, aspect of that movie. And there's a lot of people there. There's some things in there. You know, there's jetting with a, with a CO2 cylinder, you know, between space stations. There's things that are really wrong, right? And and I was not I was not part of any of the wrong things, okay? <laughs> but but I, I I was part of, you know, sharing what it's like to live up there, what it's like to live far away um from everybody you care about and, and and be be far away. But what that movie did that meant so much to me is that it was um the way it was filmed, I think they showed you the view of space in a way that you'd never seen it before, and it also showed you what it felt like to have that view. And so that actually meant everything to me. And I could forgive the rest. But I think there's always, it's always interesting to look at where is the line of what is forgivable and why. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's such an important part of it, too, that science fiction has the ability to be 
very inspirational and very aspirational. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the people who designed uh, Siri and Alexa and all these voice AI assistants have said in interviews, they did it specifically because they wanted the computer from Star Trek that yeah. they could talk to. And, and uh, you know, the, the first space shuttle was called Enterprise because of Star Trek. Uh, science fiction flip can phones. inspire us to do really great things. Yeah, or flip phones. Mm-hmm. Also, <laughs> or, or they can inspire flip phones, I guess. Well, and NASA wants, NASA or the space programs around the world, they, they want to tell these stories. But at the same time, there's some logistics involved. And for example, you know, just trying to tell that, I mean, we, we know the early stories are, the stories that we hear are mostly guys. There are certainly women that were present, and that's that's another story, so to speak. Um, but, uh, when I was there, you know, in the, in the mid two thousands or so, uh, I think British channel four and, uh, national geographic, were both going to do live from the space station. I mean, they're going to do shows on a Friday night, one on Friday night, one on a Sunday night. And if, where you're really going to hear from the astronauts in real time as part of this documentary is so cool, but it just so happened that intersected with a time when there were six guys living on the space station. And I was helping on the ground, you know, helping public affairs and helping them find what other kinds of video or ways, the, what, what other things would you like to share about what life is like up there? And to me, this was like, like a national emergency that on a Friday night at eight o'clock, a nine-year-old girl could watch this and think it was so cool and not realize that there's this subliminal message that says, yeah, really cool, but probably not you. And, and it wasn't something that NASA could really help that timing, but we could actually at least make sure the extra bits of video when we go. And so we go on spacewalks and show women and people that look different than the you know six folks that lived were actually up there as part of the show. So having the initiative to realize that when you're going to make something a lot of people are going to see, do everything you can to basically let it make all the ripples in the universe that it can. Yeah. And one of the things that you said to me early on when I was researching uh, calculating stars was that um, that you had been in college for chemistry and had not realized that space was an option for you at all until Sally Ride came to your university to speak. And it was that really struck me as like, oh, yeah, right. Well, right. And, and even, um, you know, we don't often as astronauts talk together, like together to the same audience. And I was with one of the guys that I you know, know and love and uh, he was my backup for, for my mission. And someone said, so, you know, when did you decide you wanted to be an astronaut? And he said, well, like most kids, I grew up thinking I would love to do this. And I said, you know, Mike, <laughs> um, that, is, that was not my experience. I mean, I grew up in a family where exploration through my dad in the Sea Lab program, deep sea diving, exploration was really real. Like, oh, people do this. And it's normal to think that you might go and live someplace like really far away. But not necessarily obvious that I could be one of those explorers yeah. until I remember, you know, where I was sitting and, and, and she showed up and, and, I, and, and just realizing that, you know, Maybe I could do that. Here was someone that kind of candidly looked and felt like me. And I think, you know, not everyone needs that, but a lot of people do. I'm going to make you tell one more story after we pause. After we pause for a thing of the week, which this week is For All Mankind. For All Mankind. So I love this show unabashedly. Me too. Um, even though it means that Calculating Stars will never probably be made into a TV show because it covers much of the same material, but that's part of why I love it. 
Um, so it is an alternate history uh, space program in which the Russians beat us to the moon. And so since America needs to have a first, they're like, we're going to get the first woman into space. And they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but they, they work. It's... It, but because at that point, they have put women into the space program much earlier than we did. So there are women in the Apollo program. It's so cool. It's so cool. Well, and it, it, you know, it highlights some things that you might think are obvious. But if you, let's say you pick, you know, 10 women and they're all astronauts, just by the laws of average, there's going to be some that have black hair, some brown hair, some blonde hair. I mean, just there's going to be, and it turns out that the people with the same hair color and skin color are not actually interchangeable or the same. I mean, whereas actually, I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you that, you know, often <laughs> as a woman astronaut in the 1990s, you know, you'd get confused with the other women that looked a little bit like you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and actually this show really show, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being funny about it, but, you know, they, they picked a certain number of people and they clearly, because it's TV, they clearly each had different personalities and you couldn't think that they would be sort of like all the same. And, and to me, it's a really important point that just because we're, when we include women, that we're not including one type of person. We're all different, as are all guys. I mean, I yeah. flew with the identical twins. I flew with, you know, Scott Kelly and Mark Kelly. And these are two different people. They may be identical twins. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that For All Mankind does a great job of showing that. And also it does a great job of showing that that many of the challenges that you face in space uh, are, are the same regardless of what you're facing. And then there are challenges that are very different depending on who you are. Mm -hmm. So um, so anyway, I love this show a lot. I'm, the, it's fun. The, it makes you think. Yeah. Yeah, all, all, all three of us were kind of geeking out about yeah. it. Um, the, and the science, the science is is mostly really good. Like it's mostly that they, every now and then there's something like, nah, you've, you're really stretching that. It doesn't but. work. Some forgivable mistakes. Uh, and I just, I also want to point out the showrunner and the head writer is Ronald Moore, uh, famous for Deep Space Nine and Battlestar Galactica, which are two of my favorites. Really? He's very, very good. He's one of the best yes. science fiction writers that we have in TV. So. so many of us, when we're training for the space station, if we, when we, if we launched from Russia, we would be over there for like six weeks at a time and you know, we end up, we've got like a little gym in the basement of one of the, you know, little buildings that we stay. And so you're in the gym with people and, um, and ba watching Battlestar Galactica together was like a thing. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and in that, fact, I had to wait to watch the last season. Scott's like, don't watch it until you get here up here to the space station. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my new favorite detail about the space station. Yes. Um, so, uh, so that's, uh, for all mankind, um, and again, highly recommended, but one of the things that, uh, that I want to talk about with that is that, you know, we said that sometimes the science isn't, is, is like, ah, but when it's not good, it's because they're buying something for a narrative purpose. Mm -hmm. And that to me is different than the shows where, where it's lazy science, where they could have gotten it right and it wouldn't have, and getting it right would have been better. So the the show Away, which, which I, I loved because they had a woman commander yeah. of the show, which because it just kind of plants that little seed that like, yeah, we can like, all do these things. I feel like the emotional beats of it were really good. And weirdly, they have marionettes in space and got it very right. 
how they would work. But then they also have, it's so confusing to me, like their puppetry consultant was on the money, <laughs> but their science consultant for space was like, hi or something? Or they just, well, because it's having like. Having consulted for things sometimes, right. you know, I mean, they accept input. You don't often get, yeah, I they, understand They don't necessarily that. listen they to They did their not necessarily. I think there was a lot of, oh, it doesn't matter. This is going to be amazing. Because like. Sandra Bullock, not Sandra Bullock. Um, Hillary Swank. Hillary Swank has to fix a solar panel that's broken on the, the, and the tool that she takes out with her on her spacewalk to fix this is a pickaxe. <laughs> I mean, her, mother, her mother did not teach her that. Okay. No, definitely not. <laughs> uh, this, this idea of buying something uh, is with, with your, your science in, this is something I did in zero G mm-hmm. uh, for the big spacecraft that the, the boy is in. There's a huge inner column, basically, that he zooms around in. There's no scientifically plausible reason that I came up with, first of all, for why there would be all this wasted empty space in a ship. And second of all, why it would be full of oxygen when all the passengers are in stasis pods. But what I needed was a very cool space where he could fly around in zero gravity. Because that's what gets all the kids in this middle grade novel excited and they love it, and then I can give them the vegetables on the side, right? And so that's what gets them hooked, and that's what got them excited, because I fudged a little bit of the science. And, and yet, I mean, it is part of the magic. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I loved being part of the experiments, and one, I would have stayed another six months in the minute up on that space station, because it's, it's very clear in a visceral way how important the work that you're doing. It's just there are experiments that just can't be done on Earth, but actually have a lot of Earth implications, everything from our health to, you know, how do we grow food on Mars? Well, how do we grow food down here in places where it's hard to grow them? So I felt really imperative to be doing these things. And at the same time, this idea, I was never that coordinated a person down here. And going up and being able to just have like the touch of a finger and fly down the module and be be graceful. My middle name is Grace and no one uses it, okay? <laughs> but I mean, it, but it, there is this magic that I, and it's so different than down here. I think it's part of what makes everybody feel like, you know, there's a future out there that we're still moving towards. The, mm-hmm. the poss- there's still possibilities that we've never experienced yet. And it's because something happens that is so different and that is the flying. So I'm all for your modification. There was a, as we're talking about this, the, you know, what are you buying and and the inspiration reminds me of a a thing that happened at the Nebula Conference. We managed to time the Nebula Conference with the penultimate shuttle launch. And so there are all of these science fiction writers, like it was the biggest turnout we've ever had because everybody's like, we're going to see a shuttle. And, uh, and it's this incredibly emotional experience. And, um, there are a lot of people who are in Florida to see this, and we are, as often happens. I, I cry at I've, almost every launch, yeah, I would say. I, 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 a, you I, think you're ready, and then it's such a big deal to see people leaving the yeah. planet. Do you cry on your own launches? No. Okay. <laughs> it seems like it would be... <laughs> busy. Busy, yeah. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that happened was that our hotel was being shared by another conference of aerospace engineers. And I remember sitting at the registration table and one of them walks up and goes, is this like, is this, is this like the Nebula conference? Like the Nebula Awards? I'm like, yeah, actually this, this is the Nebula Awards. And he's like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I, I can't change my flight. I'm flying out today. Is, I, I, is there anyone here that I might know? And I'm 
like, um, well, that's Joe Haldeman. And I thought he was going to swallow his tongue. (laughs) (laughs) He was so excited. And he had gone into space because he had been reading all of this science fiction. And there was a there was this moment also where um, when we were someone, you know, at the, the ceremony itself, it's a big banquet and someone had brought their dad who had designed part of a, a controller on the, the space shuttle and uh, and was recognized from the podium. And so he stands up and like the entire room gives him a standing ovation and he's like, because he is as equally excited to be there because it's a room full of science fiction. And that, again, is why he went into it. So I love the back and forth, the way we get inspired by science. And it's like, but what else can it do? And the science fiction people, the science people are like, wait, wait, do you think maybe we could, can, can I have my flip phone? <laughs> <laughs> I can talk to a computer. Yes, just uh, no flying so cars. I, want, I wanted to make a little joke like, where, like, oh, I know exactly who that person is. But it could be so many mm-hmm. people at NASA. Yeah. And I say NASA, but I mean the whole space program, the contractors, you know, everybody. There's mm-hmm. a huge love of science fiction. Actually, one interesting thing, we, Elon Musk came to talk one time. And actually, I think he was at MIT, but he, he came to talk. And one of the people who lined up to ask a question said, what kind of science fiction do you read? And unfortunately for all of you, I don't remember what Elon Musk said, okay? But he looks back at this kid and he goes, so what do you like to read? And then they went and they chatted back and forth and back and forth. It was the nicest, you know, most human kind of thing. And it's science fiction that actually brought Mm -hmm. these people from very different worlds together. Yeah. So that is going to be our writing prompt today, uh, is I want you all to take, find something that you wish were real. Some cool technology, something that you wish you could have or do, and then write a story in which it is real and illustrate how cool it is to everybody else. This is Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. And we're going to do a little bonus here because there's a story that I didn't manage to trigger Katie to tell that I want her to tell. Ooh. So this is, this is a stinger for sticking around. Katie, will you tell about your your son seeing the uh, the, the the poster the the cutout of the astronaut with the helmet down? Oh, because well, for me, I don't know. It meant it meant it, it meant a lot, but it also just it's like these possibilities where you just think, oh, maybe maybe things will change. Yeah, maybe things are changing, and that is that we were at like an event at Space Center Houston where it, it was with a whole big NASA family kind of thing, and they had a big flat cutout of a person in a spacesuit. And he go and he was like four. He's like, "Mommy, is that you?" And I said, "No, sweetie, yeah, I'm not. That's that, that's not me." And uh, and he and he goes, "Well, then, whose mommy is it?" <laughs> so, things change, and more 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 change from more sharing. Thank you for writing. Writing excuses is a Dragon Steel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. 
They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.